We're going to turn to the book of Numbers now, and uh, we're going to read from Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. 1, 1 to 19. And uh, when we were thinking of a congregational reading for this morning, uh, of course I wanted to do this one, but you'll probably see in a minute or two, while Gareth thought we might be better doing the psalm. But uh, let's read this uh, book of Numbers, chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting, in the desert of Sinai, on the first day of the second month of the second year, after the Israelites came out of Egypt. He said, take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. You and Aaron are to count according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. One man from each tribe, Each of them, the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. Now, there's a list of names here, okay, and we're going to read them, but the thing is, it's really important that they're there because list of names give the whole thing a historical context. A list of names authenticates this true story. So let's, these are the list, these are the names of the men who are to assist you. From Reuben, Eleazar, son of Shadur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zerashadah. From Judah, Nashon, son of Amenadad. From Issachar, Nathanael, son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph. From Ephraim, Elisham, son of Amahad. From Manasseh, Gamaliel, son of Pedashur. From Benjamin, Abadan, son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahazir, son of of Amashadiah. That's a good one, isn't it? From Asher, Asher, Pagiel, son of Okran. From Gad, Eliasaph, son of Duel. From Naphtali, Ahira, son of Enan. These were the men appointed from the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes. They were the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men whose names had been specified, and they called the whole community together on the first day of the second month. The people registered their ancestry by their clans and families. And the men 20 years old or more were listed by name one by one, as the Lord commanded Moses. And so he counted them in the desert of Sinai. And that's why we didn't do it as a congregational reading. But there you go, Gareth. Thank you. Somebody give that man a round of applause. My goodness. I wasn't joking. That's worth a clap. Come on. There we go. Reason to move that mic stand is for the guys at home. They'll see that come out the side of my head. It'll look weird. So it's just easier. Good morning. This is church. This is family. And whether you're here or at home, joining us from... Man, I heard there's people from Newcastle and County Down watching this morning as well. Wherever you're from, you are welcome. You are one. You are part of our, our tribe here in Orangefield, and it's great to have you along. Um, normally, what we do is we have one of our kids, one of our young people, read the Bible reading. But I'm not going to lie, asking, I, I think there's a whole section in the taking care section of the uh, manual at Church House about sort of looking after children and protecting children that says you cannot get them to read the book of Numbers because of names like that. There. It's, it's like child abuse, terrible, so it is. So I was thinking, well, 
I don't want to read it either because I don't want to look silly. Uh, so I said, Gary, would you be up for doing the Bible reading this morning? He said, yeah, I'd love to. So I said, some numbers. Uh, and he'd already said yes at that point, but I thought he did really well. He smashed it. Uh, well done, mate. That was great. Um, I'm not going to embarrass you to ask you if you've read the book of Numbers. I'm sure some of you have. Uh, I'm sure when you've read it, what you've done is you've kind of opened it up and sort of looked at the list of David and then picked up the wee sentence at the bottom uh, and, and skimmed through it. Maybe one or two of you, maybe Peter Shields, maybe you, you read the whole thing, did you? And just, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but most people tend to skim over it or skip it completely. And I can understand that because the first four chapters of the book are these lists of crazy, crazy names. It's not like they're called Tom, Joe, Bob, and Heather. They're, you know, a fatty and the people they got there. And uh, I can't even remember what they were called now, Gary, so I can't. But it's from this list, these lists of names and numbers that the book gets its name. And in the Greek, it's called Arimathai, where we get uh, the word arithmetic from, uh, meaning numbers. And it's because God spoke to Moses and he said, I want you to take a census. I want you to count the people. And these names and numbers are listed in it. And that's where the name comes from, of numbers. So in English, in Greek, we call it numbers. But the Jews with the Torah, they don't call it numbers. They call it something really different. They call it Bah Midbar. Now, I'm sure I've said, pronounced that incorrectly, but you'll forgive me. It's a Hebrew word, Bah Midbar. And it means wilderness, desert or wilderness. We call it numbers, but the Jews call it wilderness, Bah Midbar. You see, the setting, Gary mentioned, it sort of roots it in history. The historical setting of this book, it's 13 months after the people have been freed from Egypt. 13 months after the Exodus, where they've left Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they've arrived at Mount Sinai, they've been given the Ten Commandments, and now they're camped in the desert of Sinai at the foot of Mount Sinai, 13 months in the wilderness, waiting to see what God's going to ask them to do. And, and this idea of Bach Midbar, wilderness, it's not just about the geography of, of what we see. It, it's also about the cultural wilderness that they're experiencing. Like, they grew up in Egypt, and their parents grew up in Egypt, and their grandparents grew up in Egypt, and for 400 years, every generation of the Hebrew people had lived in Egypt, and they became slaves in Egypt, and they knew nothing else. Egypt was familiar to them. It was their cultural context. It was all that they knew. And yes, they were slaves, but there was a rhythm to life that was familiar. They got up, they worked, they, they rested, they told stories around the campfires at night. There was a rhythm to life that they knew. They had medical care in Egypt. They had education for their children. They had jobs, sort of, uh, in Egypt. But, but now where we find them, all of those normalities have been removed. All of those structures that they built life around, culture has been totally deconstructed for them. And we kind of get that. Where we are at the minute, we kind of get that. The last five months has been the systematic deconstruction of our culture in every way. All of the familiar things that we love and build our lives around have been stripped back and taken away from us. Think about it. We're only back in church 
five weeks. And even this feels a little bit weird and awkward, doesn't it? Sitting separated from people in pods, wearing masks, not singing. That familiarity has been deconstructed and taken away from us. Schools have been closed down for for, for months and are only just getting up and going. And we're praying for our teachers. We're praying for our kids as they go back to school because we're so excited. But even that doesn't feel normal with, you know, pods and pockets and masks and moving in certain directions and who you can see and who you can't see. Everything. Working remotely. Hands up who's working remotely. Give me a wave. Hands up at home. I can't see you, but you know know what I mean. You get to play as well. Uh, Working remotely, not seeing your colleagues, not getting to share a cup of coffee with the people in work. Just going into the office in your house and just going into a rabbit hole in the computer. Working at home, working remotely. A lot of the stuff that culturally is normal for us has been deconstructed in this season that we're in. There's a cultural wilderness. I read somewhere there was a study done during lockdown that the human soul, the human heart needs eight to ten human touches a day. You need to be touched physically, meaningfully, eight to ten times a day to thrive and to flourish. And lockdown says you don't get to touch people or hug people or even shake hands with people. There's been so much deconstruction of our normality and our rhythms. So it was a cultural wilderness wilderness for the Hebrew people, and we get that. There was an economic wilderness for them as well, and, and we kind of get that too. Um, the, the, yes, they were slaves in Egypt, and, and that was horrendous, but they were fed, and they had housing. And now they find themselves in a wilderness place in the desert of Sinai, not even able to feed themselves, hungry, longing to go back to Egypt where there was pots of soup made with onions and leeks and garlic. They can't even feed themselves. They're living in tents in the desert. It's an economic wilderness. And we get that as well. We get that as well. The, the furlough scheme that the government has stepped in to provide ends uh, at the end of November, and there's conversations going on um, around that as to whether that can be continued or not continued, and there's huge fear and uncertainty about that. I read this week that um, the apprenticeships that are offered for uh, young people who want to do engineering are down 70% because of economic uncertainty. I read this week that, that Costa, the coffee chain across the UK, is cutting and making redundant over 1,600 of their staff. And that's just one firm. Other firms have broke news like that over the past number of weeks. There's huge economic uncertainty at this time in our culture, in our society. Wilderness changes our structures. It changes our practices. It changes our rhythms of life. We are not where we were five months ago. Everybody knows that. This is unfamiliar. This is not comfortable. This is something different. We're not where we were five months ago. But equally, we're not where we're going either. People for months talked about the new normal. This isn't the new normal. Because the new normal sounds static, like you've arrived at your destination. This is not normal. This is pilgrimage. This is 
journey. This is what we have to do in the season that we are in. As we've left where we were and we're going to where we're going to, this is pilgrimage. And there's so much that resonates and identifies in this weird, complicated, hard-to-read book called Numbers, which is why God has called us, I believe, to journey through it, pilgrim our way through it with these people. But see, pilgrimage, it does something to our hearts. It does something to our hearts. And I want you to ask yourself this question. The past five months, what you've been experiencing, uh, what you've had to endure, what you've had to sacrifice, what's it done to your heart? For some, it's hardened our hearts. For others, it's softened them. For some, it's, it's pulled us towards grumbling and complaint and being critical of everything that happens. Others, it's pulled them towards gratitude and a deep sense of appreciation for the little small things in life. For some, it's pulled us towards self-reliance. Our worlds have got smaller. For others, it's pulled us towards just audacious dependence on God and other people. For some, it's pulled us towards self-preservation. I got to look after me and mine. Got to look after my church. Got to look after my family. Got to look after me. And for others, it's pulled us towards expansive generosity in this season. How can we love and bless our neighbors? How can we reach out, step up, and give more? What has pilgrimage done to your heart for the past five months? Where are you? Be honest. How's your heart this morning? You see, some Jews call this book of the Torah Bachmidbar. But some call it, and I have to read this because it's getting just weird now. Yedaber Matdebar. I'm not saying that again. But what it means, it doesn't just mean wilderness, it means God speaks in the wilderness. And now we're getting exciting. God speaks in the wilderness. It actually comes from the first few words of the book. From the verse 1 that Gary read for us, God spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness. And the Jews pick that language up to say, this is what this book's about. This is what this book's about. God speaks in the wilderness. Some people think this book was written by the priests at the time, and by by Aaron and the other Levites um, because of the liturgies, because of the instruction around worship, the instruction around Passover in the book. Um, Some scholars attribute it to all kinds of different sources and they have all kinds of names and letters and things like that there. We're not going to get into this morning, but you can buy me a coffee, I'll tell you about it. Or you can just Google it. Wikipedia is great for these things. But most of us think this book was probably written by Moses. Because yes, there's all this detailed instruction about worship, but scattered between the lists and the liturgies, we see these beautiful conversations between Moses and God, these encounters that Moses has with the presence of God that were so personal and intimate that only he would have been aware of them. And so I'm a fan of the idea that it was Moses that wrote the book. Either way, this book is the story of a people moving through the wilderness on pilgrimage, a people who have been rescued by God from slavery, a people who have been given the law, given the Torah, given the words of God, and are now learning what it is to live 
with an increased awareness of God's presence in their everyday lives. Not attributed to one day a week, but aware of God's presence with them in the camp, God calling them when to move, what to do, all of those things. It's the story of a people learning to orientate their lives around and respond to the presence of God or the voice of God, or let me use a different word, the experience of God. You see, faith is doctrine. We're Presbyterian. We have such a high view of Scripture, such a high view of doctrine. We want to to wrestle with God's Word and understand what we believe and build our practices on the Word of God and our lives on the Word of God. Faith is doctrine. And faith is, is morality. God's word talks about how we think and how we live. And in an age where morality isn't even a word that we use anymore, faith tells us and shows us how we should live. Because faith is also obedience. But once you lay those structures and foundations, faith is friendship with the living God. And what we're going to see in this book of Numbers is a God who comes to Moses and comes to his people and gives them a place to meet and a place to gather and a place to encounter him and teaches them what it is to hear his voice and to follow him, to orientate their lives around the presence of the living God. That's what this story is about. I want to share two stories of what that looks like, maybe. Um, first one, it's, it's a story that I experienced a few weeks ago. Um, and then the second one's a story somebody else in our congregation experienced um, just maybe a couple of months ago. So the first one, I was going to a builder's yard to get some pebbles from my garden. Um, did a flower betty thing. Got on, you know, a bit of, you know, man stuff. It was great. And... Um, I was driving into the builder's yard about half eight in the morning, and I said to myself, or, well, I didn't say to myself, I said to God when I was driving in, God, you know, just, just use me today. Use me today. Into the builder's yard, and um, I, I'm not really a builder's yard guy. I'm, I'm a Presbyterian minister. You know, it's, uh, but use me today in this place. So I went in and got the stones and um, got the docket that you get. I went out to the yard and one of the guys was like, I'll give you a hand loading it up. And he was going to, I started helping him with it. And I felt this prompt from God. There wasn't any real conversation, but I felt this prompt from God just to ask him how his family was. Okay, it felt strange, but it was also kind of normal too. And I said to him, listen, how's your family found lockdown? Do you have any kids? And he said, you know, funny, I, I do have kids. Um, I have a son who has additional needs. And he started sharing the story of his son who had a bleed in his brain and the challenges they've had. It was an incredible story. And it was incredible because it was almost the mirror image of the journey we have had with our own son, Archie. Um, and, and they were practically the same age. And he shared the story and shared the challenges of lockdown. And I said, well, listen, you're not going to believe this, but my son, Archie, um, and shared with him as well. And I said, listen, I'm a Christian, mate, and we've seen God answer prayer. Would it be okay if I prayed for you? He goes, do you know? He said, the wife's religious, but I'm not really. (laughs) But he says, no, I would like that. And so there in the builder's yard at half eight in the morning, covered in the dirt off the pebble bags, I got to pray with this guy. 
and to pray for his family and to pray for his son. And this is beautiful, sacred moment, living your life in response to the voice and the presence of God. Let me share another story. Um, there's a guy in our congregation, I'm not going to say his name, but early in lockdown, he, he felt prompted to just to, to give some money to bless other people, other families. And there was no description of how it was to be used. Just, you know, if there's any families that this can bless let them bless. And, and this gift came in at different times through lockdown, but it was the first or the second time he gave this gift. And it was an anonymous gift. And I had the gift in my hand. I thought, well, what am I going to do with this? And the gift had just arrived in my house, and my phone went. And it was our mate Ivan Steen, who's the minister over in Windsor. And they have a huge ministry amongst the refugee community over there. And Ivan said, Gareth, listen, I hate to ask. I know things are hard during lockdown, but we have this guy. Um, he, he's a refugee. He's become known to us as a church. He's just in the most desperate situation. He needs a wheelchair. He, he can't get out. He can't get around. He, he needs a wheelchair. And you know, I've got some money, but I, but I need this much money to get the wheelchair. And the money I had was, was almost exactly what he needed. And I said, listen, you're not going to believe this, but somebody's just given a gift to bless somebody. Can I give this to you? And there's a photo going to go on the screen, I think. Oh, it's this. <gasps> Look at that. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I feel dizzy now. Um, the wheelchair arrived, and the Sunday after the wheelchair arrived, this that guy rocks into Windsor Presbyterian Church, just so full of joy and thankfulness that people would care about him enough and that God would care about him enough to give a gift of a wheelchair. All because one member of our church was listening during his devotional time to God and was responding to God's voice and God's presence in his life. I could tell you a million stories like that. I'm not going to keep you all day with them. But this book of Numbers is about a people learning to respond to the presence of God and the voice of God each and every day as they journey through the wilderness. It's our story. It's not just their story, it's our story. So let me lean into it for a second. I'm not going to keep you long this morning, but let me lean into it for this for a second. The first four chapters of this book are names and numbers. And let's be honest, a lot of us race through them, skim over them, or avoid them completely. I'm not going to ask you to confess. Just, I can see your hearts. I know you do. Uh, it's okay, even behind the masks. Uh, but we, we do that. But, but these names are important because from these lists of names, from this census, scholars have done the maths, and they reckon there was about 2 million Hebrew people, men, women, and children, in the wilderness with Moses at that moment in history, which is incredible, incredible insight when you think of the challenges they had to endure. And God says to Moses, I want you to take a census of these people. I want you to take a census of the tribe of Reuben. I want you to take a census of the tribe of Simeon. I want you to take a census of the tribe of Judah. The 12 tribes of Israel named after the 12 sons of Jacob. I want you to count the fighting men over the age of 20 in each of those tribes. And as soon as I say that, I know rightly my feminist buddies in the congregation and around YouTube are going to say, why just the men? Why are we just counting the men? That's typical, isn't it? Why are we just counting the men? Well, culturally at that time, culturally at that time, men were deemed more valuable than women. And I'm sure you know this. Um, they were the heads of the families. They were the ones who went to war. They were deemed more valuable. And, and they were counted. 
But I want to show you something that maybe you've missed. You see, in the economy of God, things are changing. Culture dictated that the men were of more value. God met the people where they were. But that concept was on pilgrimage as well. That concept was on a journey as well. Because, yes, we counted only the men in the census, but who was the core leadership team of the Hebrew people at that time? The core leadership team was three individuals. Moses, Aaron, and who? Miriam. So in that time... When men were deemed more valuable than women, God identified a core leadership team for his people of three people that had a woman at the center of it. Isn't that incredible? I think that's incredible. I think that's incredible. Because the truth is, then and today, vocation and calling, whether it's to ordain ministry or to anything, vocation and calling is not based on gender. And it's not based on privilege. And it's not based on education. You don't have to have letters after your name to be used by God. It's based on anointing. So I want to ask you a question and say... Are there things that God has led on your heart and stirred up within you? Maybe a holy frustration at something you see in church or in society or in culture that you've been making excuses saying, I wish somebody would do something about that, but I can't do that because I'm too young. Or I can't do that because I'm too old. Or I can't do that because I didn't go to university. Or I can't do that because I'm only... Because maybe, just maybe, you're making excuses and God's actually calling you. And that's the start of something incredible shifting and changing in your life. And I'd love you to press into that and pray into that and talk to someone about that. But God wanted Moses to count the people who were in the wilderness with him. And I think he wanted them to do it for two reasons. First one was to know who was there. God wanted Moses to know the names and the families and the vocation and the hearts of the two million people who were with him at that time, at that moment in history. And I think that's incredible. I think actually that's a word in season for us that every one of us at home and here need need to grab onto and hold onto. Wilderness has us separated, isolated, frustrated, muted, and masked. It's horrendous. And yet one of our core values as a church, it's written over there, for those of you who can see it on our banners, uh, is that we are a church who care for one another. Not that we care for some people. Not that we care for the people we can see. Not that we care for the people that we like. We care for one another, for each other, each and every person. Our staff team have experienced that love and care from so many of you over the past three weeks. But here's the reality. Caring for one another, pastoral care, loving each other is the responsibility and the experience of every member of this congregation. Every member of this church family has the right and should be loved and cared for by other people within this congregation. But equally, every person in this congregation, even if this is your first Sunday here, every person in this congregation has a responsibility to care for the people around them as well. We don't ship this off to the professionals to do. 
It's not a special skill set. If you are part of this church family, you are entitled to be cared for, and it's your responsibility to care for other people as well. That, that, that's just a fact, guys. That's just a fact. And what I want you to do, this is why I feel this is a word in season. There are people in this church you haven't seen physically for five months because of lockdown and separation. I want you even right now to think about the people who would have sat near you in church. Think of the faces that you haven't seen for a while. Cast your mind. I know it's hard to remember. Cast your mind back. The people you served alongside in organizations. And what I want you to do this week is to reach out to them. If you're able to do it on social media, phone them, send them a card, whatever it is, reach out to them and say, I was thinking about you. I just want you to know that I love you, I miss you, and I'm praying for you. It's as simple as that. It's where love and care starts. It starts in in knowing the people. And just because we're not seeing them doesn't mean we don't carry them in our hearts. You up for that? At home, are you up for that? Here, are you guys up for that? You've got homework this week? You've got homework this week to reach out, to, to know, and then secondly, to be known. We're almost done. Don't worry. I know it's hard to get the sweets into the mouth past the mask. I understand that. But we're almost done. To be known. These lists of names are crazy. Of course they are. Gary was so good. He smashed it out of the park. I would have dropped the ball considerably if I tried to read those lists of 20 or so names. It's easy to skip over. It's easy to see things like a Harry, a Harry son of Enan of the tribe of Nephati. It's easy to skip over that and stumble over that. Except, except, except for this. In a book that tells the story of two million people caught in slavery and sin who God sees and God knows and God loves and he hears their prayer and he steps into history and he rescues them and he leads them out of slavery through a wilderness into a land flowing with milk and honey into a land of blessing and hope, in a book that tells a 3,000-year-old story that, that points us to God's rescue plan for all of humanity, humanity that points us to, to Jesus Christ who, who sees us and sees our sin and sees our, our brokenness and steps into humanity and rescues us on the cross and makes a way for us to come with him through a wilderness to a place of blessing, a place of hope, a place of heaven. In a book that is breathed out by God, God's own words. Capturing the hope of the gospel for every generation from then to now for all of eternity. For all generations, for all of humanity. In a story like that, that has been told here today, and maybe in other churches as well, in a story like that, God chooses to write down the name of Ahari, son of Enon, the tribe of Nephati, simply to let you know and to let me know that God saw him and loved him, and rescued him. God isn't distant and disconnected. Some people think God set the world in motion and stepped back. 
God is not distant and disconnected from lockdown or from your family or from you or from your church. He's not distant and disconnected from the wilderness moments of your life. He is present and he is loving and he is reaching out to you this morning. He is present and he is loving and he is reaching out to you. He sees you. He sees your struggles. He sees your heartbreaks. He sees uh, the addictive patterns of behavior in your life. He sees your just loneliness. He sees your fear. He sees your guilt. He sees your shame. He sees you. And he loves you. And this morning he is reaching out to you. And whether you're a Christian or you're not yet a Christian, he's saying that there is more to life. Where we are at the minute is not the normal. But I want to take you by the hand, God said, and I want to walk with you through this season in your life, and I want to bring you into a better place. I want to bring you into a better place. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And as they do, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing. And as we sing this song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I don't want you just to to hear the words. I want you to embody those words. To say those words are my story. Let's pray together now. Holy Spirit, won't you come now into this place and into every place where your people worship this morning? Come and rest and reveal. Come and love and come and heal. Come and let us know, Lord, that this is not the end of our story. Let us know your love. For some, Lord, let them know your forgiveness. Now, maybe for the very first time, just put your hands out and say, I I, want to be forgiven. I want to be a child of God. Come into my life, Jesus. Receive him now. Give your life to him now. For others, welcome his presence into the struggles and the pain and the wilderness that you're carrying in your heart. And it might be that it doesn't change immediately, it doesn't change overnight. But what changes is the God who says, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't need to be afraid, for I am with you. Know God's presence and his help. Name your struggle before him. Say what it is. Not to me, to him. And receive his help now. God, there is no sea you can't split, no no mountain you can't break open and move. Nothing is impossible for you. We are a pilgrim people, Lord. Grant us your presence on this journey. 
And may we be a people who radiate your presence and your hope into the wilderness of this cultural moment that we live in. In Jesus' name, amen.